0: Amen.
1: Some of the music that Don loved most, played by people he admired tremendously. In fact, Jim Hall, he just played that guitar, but I think, he toilet, I think he said on the way here, he was thinking, what would Don like to hear? So I, I think you found it. And we're here to hear some of the people who have probably known Don more than half their lives, I think. If we had Been able to have everyone who wanted to speak, everyone who cared about Don, everyone who Don cared about, we would probably have a two-day marathon. So these are some of the ones who have known him longest, and here we are. And we're here to see a couple of his favorite pieces performed by actors who have been working on them and some of whom have been in the stage presentation in this very theater. Theatre graciously donated to us by Wynne Henley, excellent director who has put together this event, and who, during one of the rehearsals early this afternoon, when a uh, stage person said, oh, that's good writing. Wynne said, once you've done Donald Bartholomew, everything else is like ABC. And we're here to have a glass of wine in Don's honor, something else he also liked to do. And maybe then to hear a toast from somebody who would like to say something who hasn't been up here. We're here to remind ourselves, to remind each other, and especially to remind Mary Barthelmey, and Anna Barthelmey, and Catherine Barthelmey, how very much we love Donald, how much we miss him, and how much he will always be part
2: I want to read a a few words of my own, this is the opening lines of uh, a tribute that I wrote uh, to Donald in in the last few days that that was read at the American Institute and Academy on box and Letters, of which we were both members. This is just the first lines, and then I want to read a few lines of of, Donald's work. He was unremittingly vivacious, fastidious, acute in his writing and in his conversation. His brilliance was peerless, but so was his charm, which had a distinctly Western flavor. The big frame, the wire rimmed glasses, the mildly patriarchal beard, the cowboy boots, and the deliberateness of walk they sponsored, the artful pauses in his eloquence, the quizzical look, and the intimidating silences when he just listened. All these never let you forget that he hailed from Houston and have been just visiting us in New York all these years. I find something more Western than not in the good-natured, self-confident use he made of all that cosmopolitan, modernist erudition that was his and in the appetitiveness with which he evoked the phantasmagoria and oddments of the contemporary. How all American the reach of Donald Bartholomew's wit was. He was at least as much the heir of Mark Twain as he was the disciple of Joyce and of Max Ernst and of Borges. And uh, I want to read a few lines of Don from one of his many wonderful books. It's the recent. Novel, not the last, the recent novel, Paradise. Toward the end, a kind of a chorus of the three um, women who live with the narrator, Simon. It's the fault of the men as a group. They don't want us to bloom and flower, trying to keep all the prosperity for a few self-elected individuals. Men, I've endured it on every side. Whole societies have taken glee and satisfaction from heckling, humiliating, and scourging me. Thought I heard a skunk barking. They're tearing me apart with their defamations that whole worlds chuckle about. I think we should buy some cars or something, firebirds and cutlasses. The inconsequence of your thought is a burden to me. Stick a screwdriver down your throat if you mess with me, a big screwdriver got to get that bird's nest on the ground. You can start in America with just a nickel, and pretty soon you have a dime. I've been busy sorting buttons, one thing and another, polishing the doorknobs and getting the fug out of the corners. A few rows of figures I'd like you to check over. Used to be able to stay up all night and roar. Can't do that now wash my fingers frequently, bubbling in responses to forms and questionnaires. We watched a movie in which a giant chandelier visited the earth and a lot of little green whips hung about the edges of the frame, cooing. Yeah, I saw that one. guy came up to you on the street, black guy, and he says, can you spare a quarter for an American citizen? You gave it to him. How could I not? Caught in the cognitive squeeze. He said his wife finally asked him to stop introducing her to people as my wife. That's not unreasonable. One day there won't be wives anymore, or husbands either. Just free units cruising the surface of the earth, flying the black flag. Something to look forward to. Do you really think so? What about the children? Get one and keep it. Keep it for yourself. Hug it and teach it things, everything you know. But they need fathers in theory, that kind of quality, that kind of rough quality. I forgot about boys. Reminds me of thick lumber stacked on the back of a truck held down by chains. How can we leave him? How can we not leave him? He's gracious and good. He's not the only pebble on the beach. It's an impossible situation, but I like it. The thing is, whether we believe in ourselves or not, it's like three people reading a magazine at the same time, but we'll never see them again. We'll send postcards, little satisfaction in that. Well, you can't have everything. Something is better than nothing. The thing is, we just have to have the courage of our convictions. Well, I've learned this. To make progress, you have to give up something. How do you know that's true? It sounds right. It includes pain.
3: Friends, I propose to be lighthearted hearted if I can manage that, because Donald and I were never serious for too long when we were together. I was his editor, and he was my writer for 26 years. And that's a relationship that can only survive in mutual confidence and many good moments. And of course, he was the consummate contributor, a model for us all at the magazine. He wrote the cleanest copy imaginable. Thousands of pages it came to. Without a word, thought or a slovenly sentence. Most of the time, there was nothing for me to do except try to sneak a couple of commas across the border or secure a visa for a hardworking semicolon. I recall a day when he permitted me to cut his copy at the last moment. We were going to press with his story, Eugenie Grande, and there were layout problems because the piece was full of short paragraphs, and breaks, and dots, and illustrations. In the story, there's a passage about cooking, and then a paragraph consisting entirely of the repeated word, butter. Butter over and over again. 137 butters. We needed to take four lines out of the story somewhere, so I called Donald on the phone to explain the situation, and then ventured the thought that perhaps his recipe was a little too rich. Could I not take out 24 butters by chance? Take them out," he said, granted, but not one extra spoonful. (laughs) Now and then I had to tell him that we weren't going to publish a story that he sent in. He took the news unhappily, but absolutely without complaining. And often he would call me back within a day or two to talk talk about something or other, but really to let me know that he he, he was sorry for me for having to give out bad news to a friend and for being (laughs) wrong. The combination of reticence and high self-regard ran very deep in him, the great artist mixed. I think some of you may recall a television interview in which the host asked about another celebrated American writer. And Don sighed and said, Yes, I know him. His big books are always leaving us yes, my little books on the shelf. A friend of mine, named Donald's, a good writer, told me about the time she wanted him to read a manuscript, a story of hers in manuscript. But as she explained, she felt shy about it because she was afraid it sounded like something he might have written. He told her not to worry about that because she was nothing like him. She was a complete original. She should stop worrying about things like that. So she gave him the manuscript, and he sat down and began happily reading along. Then he stopped and said, what's this? You've used the word pemmican here. You can't do that. I've already used that word. But I have quiet thoughts about that as well. I've been thinking of what Baronka Gang said just after he died, a line I quoted in the New Yorker's obituary. When he was writing a lot, you had this sense that there was someone else, sort of like you, living in your city, and saying things that meant something in your life. It was like having a companion in the world. I counted on him in just that way. I think we all did. I knew that in hard times I could always call him up and have his full attention, that sweetness and wisdom and intimate courtesy. Or else I could simply bring him to mind, his handsome, massive presence, his gravity, a light gravity, if that's possible, his hovering sadness, and then the brightening that accompanied a fresh idea or a relieving shaft of irony in the conversation. Or I could go back and read him, And find there, unfailingly, the the surprise of art, some breathtaking sentence suspended on air, some irrational situation or possibility considered with splendid formality, the sudden sailing lyrical flight, and the clear elegance of a prose that was both offhand and weighty, deathly sad, or terrifically funny, depending on where you were on the page or in your head. What I encountered again and again in his books and stories, most of all in the 60s and early 70s, was myself. But they're sustained by invention and humor and courage, and by Donald's conviction that just possibly, despite all the evidence to the contrary, we were going to be all right.
4: When I was a little girl, I made mud pies. Dangled string-down crayfish holes, hoping the idiot crayfish would catch hold and allow themselves to be hauled into the light. Snarled and cried, ate ice cream and sang, How High the Moon! Popped the wings off crickets and floated stray scrabble pieces in ditch water. All perfect and ordinary and perfect. Featherings of ease and bliss. I was preparing myself, getting ready for the great day. Icy day with salt on all the sidewalks. Sketching attitudes and forming pretty speeches. pitting pennies at a line scraped in the dust. Doing and redoing my lustrous, abundant hair. Oh, that clown band, oh, its sweet strings. Tied flares to my extremities and wound candy canes into my lustrous, abundant hair. Getting ready for the great day. Always worth making the effort. Always. Yes, that's something we do our damnedest. They can't take that away from us. Got to make the effort. Scratch where it itches. Plans, schemes, directives, guidelines. Bounding into the woods on all fours. Barking like a mother. Biting at whatever moves in front of me. Do you also save string On my free evenings and paid holidays. Making the most of the time I have here on this earth knotting, sewing, weaving, welding. Bust your ass, it's the only way. Had a clown at the wedding. He officiated, standing there in his voluptuous white costume, his drum and trumpet at his feet. He said, do you, Harry, and all that. The guests applauded, the clown band played. It was a brilliant occasion. Our many moons of patience and accommodation. The guests applauded. Above us, a great tent with red and yellow stripes the unexploded pillow in a simple blunt sheet i was beckoned savagely so painting dead women by the hundreds in passionate imitation of delacroix sailing after lunch and after sailing gin born with a silver hoe in your mouth <laughs> do not go into the red barn he said i went into the red barn julia Swinging on a rope from hayloft to tack room. Gazed at by horses with their large, accepting eyes. You packed hastily. Reaching the station just before midnight, counting the pennies in your purse. Yes, regaining the city, plunged once again into activities. You've got to have something beside yourself. A cause, interest, or goal. Made myself knowledgeable in certain areas, one, two, three, four. Studied the value line and dipped into cocoa. The kind of thing you do so well. Acquired busts of certain notables, marble silver, bronze. The Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs wailed a bit into the ears of friends and caverns of the telephone. But I rallied, rallied, made an effort, made the effort to make soft what is hard, to make hard the soft, to conceal what is black with use under new paint, to check the tomatoes with their red times in the manual, to inspirit the spiritless, to get me a jug and go out behind the pump house sharing with whoever is out behind the pump house, peasant or noble. Sometimes I have luck in plazas or taverns. Right as rain, I mean okey-dokey. Toys, toys, I want more toys. Yes, I should think you would. That wallow in certainty called the love affair. Fading gray velvet of the sofa. He clowned with my panties in his teeth. Walked around like that for half an hour. What's this gunk here in this bucket? Bread and milk, have some. I think I could eat a little something. A mistletoe salad we whipped up together. Stick to it, keep after it. Only way to go is all the way. Want to buy a garter belt? Have one, thanks. Cut your losses, try another town, split for the tall timber. Well? It's a clean afternoon, heavy on the azaleas. Yes, they pride themselves on their azaleas around here, have competitions, cups. I dashed a hope and dimmed an ardor. Promises shimmering like shrimp in light just under the surface of the water peered into his dental arcade, noting the health of his picture backed into a small table which overturned with a scattering of ashtrays and back copies of important journals. What ought I to do? What do you advise me? Shall I expand or contract? What will happen? Yes, it's caring and being kind. We have corn dodgers too and bloodsuckers lasciviously offered. Offered as something pure and white. But he hastily, with an embarrassed shuttish of the hands, covered you up again, much like that. I don't mind doing the work if I get the results. We had a dog because we thought it would keep us together. A plain dog. Did it? No. It was just another of those dumb ideas we had we thought would keep us together. Bone ignorance. Saw him once more. He was at a meeting I was at had developed this annoying habit of coughing into his coat collar whenever he coughed. Yes, he'd lift his coat collar and cough into it. Odd mannerism, very annoying. Then the candles going out, one by one. The last candle hidden behind the altar. The tabernacle door ajar. The clapping shut of the book. I got ready for the great day. The great day came several times, in fact, each time with memories of the last time. No, these do not, in fact, intrude. Maybe as a slight catena of the over and done with. Each great day is a day unto itself, with its own war machines, rattles, and green lords. He told me terrible things on the evening of that day. As we sat, side by side, waiting for the rain to wash his watercolor papers clean, waiting for the rain to wash the watercolors from his watercolor paper. What do the children say? There's a thing the children say. What do the children say? They say, will you always love me? Always. Will you always remember me? always will you remember me a year from now yes i will will you remember me two years from now yes i will will you remember me five years from now yes i will knock knock who's there you see
5: In the late summer of 1962, I was sitting in my tiny cubicle of an office at the Sterling Award Agency when Sterling threw down on my desk a sheet of short stories which had been given to him when he went to lecture at the Staten Island Writers' Conference. I was his assistant, and my instructions were to read through them, and if there were any I found interesting, I was to contact the writer as an agent. They were a mediocre assortment except for an amazing story called Big Broadcast 1938 by a writer named Donald Barcomy with an address in Houston, Texas. Reading Big Broadcast 1938 changed my feelings about fiction forever. It thrilled and delighted me and seemed unbelievably daring in the risks it took with the conventional form. Of course I wrote to Donald, asking to represent. him and he replied that he would be happy to have an agent in New York, little realizing that I was not yet an agent. I felt that I had to work very hard to justify his faith in me. There was no question in my mind that Donald was an amazing writer. Don's wit, his dazzling verbal juxtapositions, and his sly, ironic view of a world spinning too often out of control became the hallmark for a generation of writers. Within a couple of years, the work of Don's imitators streamed across the desks of editors of literary magazines. Donald always said he wanted his work to make people laugh as well as break their hearts. His boldness as a writer and as a person was wonderfully refreshing and invigorating. He took my breath away. Years ago, he abruptly turned to me and said, astonishing. Donald's presence in a conversation invested it with a startling clarity and freshness. Exchanges were richer, fuller, and more complete. Donald's kaleidoscopic vision delighted his readers and his friends. With one turn, he would change the colors, the pattern. He never disappointed and was always surprising. As I became a real agent in the real world, Donald's work continued to show all of us a way of looking at a world that makes no sense. Donald Bartholomew accomplished what he set out to do. He made us laugh, he broke our hearts, and continually he astonished us. And now he's gone, and the world makes even less sense.
6: Donald had resisted sundry academic overtures for years. And here and there in his fiction, in the story Porcupines at the University, for example, he teases the academy a good deal more amiably, I want to say, than many other off-campus writers have seen the fit to do. After spells of doing this and that in Texas, he had settled in to survive in New York strictly as a writer but his income never kept pace with his literary stature, that happens. And he remarked to me 20 years ago that he could remember scarcely a month in his adult life when he hadn't had to worry seriously about paying the bills. Mainly for that reason, at the end of the 1960s or the beginning of the 70s, I forget, I was able to persuade Donald to take my place for a semester at the State University of New York at Buffalo While I went on academic leave, the pay was good, and as a visitor, he'd be spared the chores of academic housekeeping. He could fly out to the Queen City from New York overnight, do his seminars and conferences, and then take his week's worth of manuscripts home to West 11th Street for line editing. Privately, I hoped he wouldn't shortchange my students, as has been known to happen occasionally in such cases. What Donald did, in fact, was long change them. Word reached me in Boston that he and they were publishing the best of the students' work in a handsome magazine in the tabloid format of the original fiction magazine with wonderful illustrations by Donald himself. Furthermore, he let them take him, the students, after class to Buffalo neighborhood bars. I didn't do that. Where he instructed them in the perils of alcohol for aspiring American writers. I had the distinct feeling when I returned that my students had not suffered irremediably from my absence. Having thus wet his academic feet along the banks of the Niagara, he did me the same favor again the very next year, or perhaps the one after, along the banks of the Charles, where I've been visiting Boston U. It was another quick shot from here with a comparable job description. And once again, Donald made a limited pact with the devil of academe and more than fulfilled his end of the bargain. The careful editing and criticism, the handsome publication, the sound chemical advice delivered in situ. And it must be said that the devil kept his end of the bargain, too, for my impression is that after Donald's trial seasons in Buffalo and in Boston, his academic affiliation was unbroken, though more or less attenuated. There was, if I remember correctly, a regular part-time appointment at City University from where, I think, he conducted his workshops in his and Marion's Greenwich Village apartment and then his full-fledged professorial residency in Houston where, so far from being a mere ornament to the faculty, he was an organizing force of a first-rate program and, as I can testify for having been for a change, his guest instead of he mine, the presiding spirit of a lively academic community. I know that Donald was good for the university and that the university was good to him. Whether academic life was good for Donald Bartholomew, the writer, it isn't really for me to speculate, but I see no evidence, whatever, that his art suffered from it in any respect. It was top drawer Donald, right up to the end, and I know for a fact from from our having exchanged occasional choice apprentices between Houston and Johns Hopkins, that their art was invariably strengthened and sometimes even magically transformed by the meticulous ministrations Professor uh, Barthelme.
7: I met Don, I guess, in 1965 or six. We were at a conference at Sarah Lawrence where I hadn't begun to teach yet. I, I was eventually going to do it for about twenty years, and uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, "You live across the street from me." I said, "Ah, duh. do," and then we were friends from <laughs> um, I uh, I had really tried not to know writers for a long time at that time, but. Because of Donald, and because of and because of my feelings for him, and uh, I, uh, I was able to to really uh, uh, know, in another way, um, literary literary people, and even get to like them finally. i know not know lot. I I want to say a couple of things about him. First. Um, just one little story first, but this is about Diane um, as a caretaker. He was really a caretaker, and uh, he was a caretaker of uh, his students, and he was a caretaker, and I think some of them could say, tell that story too here today, he was a caretaker of, um, of his friends in many ways, and he was a caretaker of uh, the, the organization that he loves, uh, I think it's a great deal, that was Penn, he thought, saw himself that way, and I saw him that way too. But uh, in, in, as far as I was concerned, he, one day, he came up to me, and this must have been in 73 or something like that, and he said, um, when I said, come on, I mean, we're, we're in the street, you understand? And he uh, saw me, and he crossed the street. We're probably both gonna go shopping at the Jefferson Market. And he said, uh, listen, he said, you have enough stories for a book, you know that? And I said, what? And he said, yes, you have enough stories for a book, now you get them together, and get that book together. So, um, it could be scary, too. And <laughs> so I went back home, I forgot it, and I looked at this and that, and I began to get things together. And uh, he would uh, stop me again and again, and say, well, have you done that yet? And, um, well, I did. And um, I sometimes think that I never would have gotten that book together if he hadn't really um, harassed me into it. So I owe him a good deal of that. Um, that was one one thing I wanted to say about him. The other thing I wanted to say is I have always thought of him as a kind of a uh, I think I think there was a lot of journalism in him. I mean I think that he was a poet of he was a poet of uh, of the news almost. Uh, he 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 uh, he seemed to me to be so uh, 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 so amazingly uh, uh, on on top of the politics of our time, and of course that's what interested me a lot. So therefore, I love that fact about him. Uh, he uh, uh, what he could what he could do with all of that was was. Was to make to make the uh, the uh, uh, to, to take to take the facts of the case really and attach uh, wings to them in some kind of way so that uh, they were um, uh, uh, just clarified by the high air in which they flew. He um, he. His stories of the neighborhood, for instance, always seemed to me very, very, uh, uh, very much what he was about. To me, again, I see him in that way. I see him as a, as a neighborhood person. Uh, I always thought of him that way. And I thought he liked that fact about living in New York City. And when that neighborhood began to collapse in some ways, I don't mean to say that that was the only reason he went to Houston, there were a lot of good reasons, and of course his family was here and everything. <laughs> but I, I always feel that, that he needed that community, that everyday community, that um, community, not only of, uh, of scholars and artists, but that the, those uh, streets and that ordinary life here as well. Um, at one time, a few years ago, we had a, a the great differences of opinion about some matters, some you know about. And, um, and we were somewhat, we were really adversaries, and we just didn't it all. Well. There never was a minute in my life that I didn't love Donald. I, uh, I, I really can't stand his death, and I think, all well, of you feel that way too, it's really not to be born.
8: Here, Donald came to the city as a provincial and with an ambition and a vision. And like all youthful provincials or provincial visions, this was shot through with a kind of an innocence and uh, an integrity, also. And for me, one of the amazing things about him was that no matter how sophisticated he became as an artist and you know, how subtle and complex the person he never lost that original innocence and that integrity. And the interesting thing too about it is sometimes, on the most mundane level, uh, in the kind of never accepted of everyday life, this innocence could be damnable And uh, his integrity could be perverse, for so seemingly. And uh, I'd like to cite a few instances uh, on taxes. Don would fill out the short tax form because he was too busy writing to do anything else. And that's the one that had the big space to report all the income of John and a very small space for your deductions. And uh, he would take a few blatantly legitimate deductions, like uh, paper and carbons and typewriter repair. And consequently, uh, all through the 60s, the government was way ahead of him. And in fact, taxes hovered over him like, uh, I don't know if you remember the little Admin that uh, fellow Joe Bittlestick Biff- Stick with a cloud, Well that's what taxes were like over the And he lived, literally, um, story to mouth. But uh, since he uh, owed Uncle Sam all that money, it, it didn't make any difference. He still went to the Jefferson Market, the he referred to, and uh, bought the best chops, uh, and the best fruits, and the best wines for breakfast. <laughs> and and um, if you challenge him about that sort of thing, uh, why, he wouldn't even think about it because it was what the government did. They bamboozled people and they took taxes and he wasn't going to stoop for that bamboozled um, Another instance, uh, the building that he lived in, 113, must have been uh, was bought by a landlord, a particularly uh, egregious example. One of the guys of wanting Don's apartment for uh, a very choice apartment for his rent control apartment for his personal use uh, practiced every underhanded uh, trick in his power to harass his victim. And, uh, and even when one of the Scrooge's corporate manipulations would become patently obvious, uh, exposing him to reprisal, uh, Don wouldn't uh, pounce. He, he wouldn't give the landlord the satisfaction uh, of seeing him die, stooped on that moral level. And consequently, the harassment went on, but for years, and Donald held very sternly and firmly to his high moral ground. The faucets leaked, the buzzer didn't work, the electricity was inadequate and illegally wired, and dangerous, heat was withheld, and uh, Donald, the architect's son, uh, painted the apartment himself, Built walls himself to make it more commodious, bought beautiful furniture, which he continually rearranged, searching for the most beautiful setting, and he went on writing his stories, his wonderful stories. And uh, for me, uh, his practical friend, um, this maintenance of integrity on his part I thought was quixotic and, uh, you know, kind of bone against bone street life of our times, I thought it was damnably innocent, and uh, I felt he suffered unjustly because of it, and because he was such a fine artist, I didn't think he deserved that. But no matter how I or any of his friends would exhort him, he wouldn't change. And I think one of the most outstanding qualities that I admired in his work was a clarity of vision and, and a purity of tone, the almost Mozartian purity of tone. And uh, I think he almost never struck off note. And it took me years to realize that he didn't just not strike off notes because he refused to connect with the government, uh, or he wouldn't get in the gutter with the landlord. Uh, he, he did it because he would only concern himself with the apartment as it should be. The rooms of their most beautiful, not the debased withholding of heat from his tendency that didn't interfere with it, and I think that the gap between these two extremes was fuel for his irony, and at the same time it gave his work uh, a vision uh, that had a peculiar innocence to it, and we. Uh, uh, really, uh, a sense of integrity. And I think that this combination is something that's, in art, extremely rare. And that uh, we here, very, very likely that we won't see anything like it again. So our loss is
9: more than we can bear. <laughs> there were no questions that were off limits. In fact, if I didn't ask them, he did. There was no malice involved, though he did want to shake people up. He took childishly in watching the status quo challenge, though he had a very adult, dignified way of wishing you well at the end of any exchange. If we had been tennis players, I have no doubt that he would have jumped over the net first, or even in the middle of a game to end it if he got bored and there seemed something more productive to do. He was undoubtedly sometimes bored. For all his fascination with the inherent strangeness of things, the world he saw was also clear enough on some days to produce melancholy. He was pessimistic at times. He had a questioning mind. Perhaps he sometimes posed harder questions to himself than necessary. He was full of questions about why we lived the way we lived, and he had clear vision that allowed him to get very quickly to the heart of things. It's very interesting that such a disparate lot of people were so moved by his writing, and it's very interesting that we all sought out again and again a man who was very grudgingly wise, and often so forthcoming that we could be entirely disarmed by the first sentence. He didn't think matters were simple, but anyone who knew him knew that he adhered to a few simple truths. He was honest. He believed that if one was right, one must persevere, and family and friends were always the high priority. I know that those of us he held in high esteem were very lucky. Even those who knew him primarily through his writing were able to sense the rules by which such an extraordinarily gifted and kind person was playing. Rather than being a trickster, he was a magician who effected amazing changes in a person or thing once the ordinary masks were slipped away so the simple truth could be revealed. He made things look easy, but of course that was just another talent. It was the result of hard work as well as brilliance of vision. He was a superb visual artist who most often took language as his medium. When I think of his work, it comes to me in snippets of dialogue, in people's funny names, and in their funnier predicaments, in endings so unorchestrated they could break their heart. At the Museum of Modern Art today, I was about halfway through the Brock Picasso exhibit when a man standing in front of me turned to his wife and gripped her arm and said, at this point it begins to get away from me. <laughs> so there it was, it was a remark at once so perfectly succinct and also mysterious that really my only silent response was that I was hearing a line from Donald bartholomew And that having read and having known Donald, I could either decide for certain what the next line would be, or it would be all right with him if I improvised. Uh, I could also just stroll away, happier for having heard it, humming a few bars of some tune.
10: than myself. Although we did not see enough of each other to become very close friends, this bond allowed us to understand each other to some depth. It was almost as though we were both Estonians, say, or Walloons. I had only to catch his eye or he mine to confirm yet again that we were responding similarly to much of life. This bond, although I don't recall our having done more than mention it a couple of times, was that we were both sons of (laughs) architects. There was an urgency in both of us to create structures such as the world had never seen before, but which, to the surprise of the world, would prove to be eminently inhabitable. Most writers find radical engineering of that sort quite unnecessary, and they are right about themselves, but not about children of architects. (laughs) There's every reason to suspect that a person my age has started to go batty. I watch myself for symptoms. Let me tell you the latest one. I find it impossible to believe that Donald is dead. Call in the white-coated men with the big butterfly nets here I am standing before you insisting that Donald Barclay is not dead.
11: Today we make the leap to faith. Today. Today? Today.
12: We're really going to do it at last?
11: Spent too much time fooling around. Today we do it.
12: I don't know. Maybe we're not ready.
11: I am cheered by the wine of possibility and the growing popularity of light. Today's the day. You're serious. Intensely. First, we examine our conscience. I am a double-minded man, have always been a double-minded man. Each examining his own conscience, rooting out, naming, remembering, and re-experiencing every last little kank and wrinkle, root and branch.
12: Smiting each conscience, hip and thigh.
11: Thigh and hip, smite,
12: smite. God is good, and we are but poor wretches who. Wait. Poor slovening wretches who, but for the goodness of
11: God would. Wait. This will be painful, you know. A bit. Oh, my God. What? I just had a thought. A prick of conscience?
12: Yes. Item 34.
11: What's item 34?
12: An unkindness. One of a series. Series long as your arm.
11: He you lists them separately? Yes. You don't just throw them all together into a great big trash bag labeled? No. I sweat each one. Seriatum. I said it would be painful. Might we postpone it? Meditate instead on his works. They're magnificent. Not that we
12: could in a hundred million years exhaust.
11: It's a sort of if a bird took one grain of sand and flew all his life, and then another bird took another grain of sand and flew all his life situation.
12: Contemplate only the animals. Restrict the field. Of course, we've got over a million species so far. New ones being identified every day. Insects, mostly. I like
11: plants better than animals.
12: Animals give you a lot of warmth. A dog would be
11: an example. I like people better than plants. Plants better than animals. Paintings better than animals. And music better than animals.
12: Praising the animals, then, would not be your first impulse.
11: (laughs) I respect the animals. I admire the animals. But could we contemplate something else?
12: Take a glass of water, for example. A
11: glass of water is a miraculous thing. The blue of the sky, against which we find the shocking green of the leaves of the trees. The trees.
12: I think that I shall never see, slash, a poem lovely as a tree.
11: A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed, slash, against the earth's sweet flowing breast. Why mouth? Why breast? The working of the creative mind. An unfathomable mystery. Never to be fathomed. I would even want to fathom it. If one fathomed it, who can say what frightful things might thereupon be fathomed? Fathoming such is beyond the powers of poor ravening noodles like ourselves. Who but for the... And another thing, <laughs> the human voice. My God, you're right. The human voice. Bessie Smith. Alice Bach. Joan Armatrading.
6: Aretha
11: Frank. Each voice testifying to the greater honor and glory of God, each in its own way. Damn straight. Sweet Emma Barrett, the bell gal. Gotcha. Das liegt von der Erde. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Then there are the bad things. Cancer.
12: An unfathomable mystery at this point, but one which must inevitably succumb to the inexorable forward march of scientific
11: progress. Economic inequality. In
12: my view, this will be ameliorated in the near future by the pressure of population growth. Pressure of population growth being such that economic inequality
11: simply cannot endure. What about ZPG? An ideal rather than a social slash political reality. So God's creatures, in your opinion, multiplying and multiplying and multiplying as per instruction will...
12: Propagate fiercely until the sum total of what has been propagated yields a pressure so intense that every feature, great or small, of every life, great or small, is instantly scrutinized, weighed, judged decided upon and disposed of by the sum total of one's peers, in doubtless electronic, ongoing, all-seeing, everlasting Congress assembled. Thus, if one guy has a little advantage, a little edge, it is instantly taken away from him. And similarly, if another guy has a little lack, some little lack, this little lack is instantly supplied by the arbiters. Things cannot be otherwise. Because there's not going to be any room to fucking move, man. you follow me? There's not going to be any room to fucking sneeze without just sneezing on somebody.
11: This is the divine plan? Who can know the subtle working of his mind?
12: But it seems to me the way events are going. That's
11: another thing. The human mind.
12: Good God, yes. The human mind. The
11: human mind, which is, in my judgment, the finest of our human achievements. Much the finest.
12: I can think of nothing remotely
11: comparable. Is a flower, however beautiful and interesting, comparable to the human mind? I think not. Matter of higher and lower levels of of, uh, complexity. I concur. This is not to knock the flower.
12: This is not to say that the beautiful, interesting
11: flower is not,
12: in its own terms, entirely fantastic. The
11: toast of the earth. Did I ever tell you about the time when I was in Korea and Cardinal Spellman came to see us at Christmas and his plane was preceded by another plane broadcasting sacred music over the terrain, (laughs) spraying the terrain, as it were, with sacred music. So that those on
12: earth could hear and be edified.
11: Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Yes, the
12: human mind
11: deserves the greatest respect.
12: (laughs) Not so good, of course, as the divine mind,
11: but not bad. William O'Bakam, Maimonides, the Vienna Circle, the Frankfurt School, Manichaeus, Peirce, occasionalism, a pretty array. I believe occasionalism has been discredited. (laughs) But let it stand, it was a nice try. (laughs) And philosophy, as my dear teacher taught me so long, long ago, is not to be regarded as a graveyard of dead systems.
12: The question of suicide, self-slaughter, maybe we ought to think about it. What's to think about?
11: Look at this. What is it? The bill. For what is it the bill? A try. Who's an acquaintance? Good God. Yes. Ought two slash twenty four electrocardiogram, ought two, ought, 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 ought one, thirty five bucks. Ought two
12: slash twenty four cardiopulmonary two, ought, 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 ought one, forty
11: bucks. Ought 2 slash 24 inhalation therapy 14, ought, 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 ought 1, 60 bucks. Ought
12: 2 slash 24 room 4915, a neat 180.
11: It goes on for miles. What's the total? Shade under $2,000, $1,902.90. You'd think they'd give you the 90 cents? You'd think they would.
12: And the acquaintance?
11: She's well. This being an example of the leap away from faith. Exactly. You can jump either way. Shall we examine our consciences now? You are mad with hurry.
12: We are poor lapsarian futiles whose preen glands are all out of whack, and who, but for the grace of God's goodness. Do you think
11: he wants us to grovel quite so much? I don't think he gives a rap, but it's traditional. We hang by a slender thread. The fire
12: boils below us.
11: The pits, crawling with roaches and other things.
12: Tortures unimaginable, but the worst. The torture of knowing it could have been otherwise had we shaped up. Purity of heart is to will one thing. No, no, here I differ with Kierkegaard. Purity of heart is rather to will several things, and not to know which is the better, truer thing, and to worry about this forever.
11: (laughs) A continuing itch of mind,
12: Sometimes assuageable by timely masturbation.
11: I forgot!
12: Love! (laughs) Oh my God, yes! love, both human and
11: divine. Love, the highest form of human endeavor. Coming or going, the absolute zenith. Is it permitted to differ with Kierkegaard?
12: Not only permitted, but necessary if you love him.
11: Love, which is a kind of permission to come closer than the ordinary norms of good behavior might usually sanction. (laughs) Back rubs which enables us to see each other without clothes on, for example, in lust and shame.
12: Examining perfections, imperfections.
11: Which allows us to say wounding things to each other, which would not be kosher under the ordinary rules of civilized discourse.
12: Walking my baby back home.
11: Love, which allows us to live together, male and female, in small, grubby apartments that would only hold one sane person only.
12: (laughs) Misting the plants together, the handsome, Beautiful plants.
11: He who hath not love is a sad cookie. This is the way, walk ye in it.
12: Isaiah 30, 21.
11: Can't make it, man. What? I can't make it. The leap. Can't make it. I'm a double-minded man. Well? An incorrigibly double-minded man. What then? Keep on trying?
12: Yes, we must.
11: Try again another day?
12: Yes. Yes. Another day when the plaid cactus is watered. When the hare's
11: foot fern is watered. Seeds tingling in the barrens and velts. Green peas, yellow and green,
12: wrinkling and rounding.
11: Another day when locust wings are bailed for shipment to Singapore, where folks like their little hit of locust wing tea. (laughs) A jug of wine, then another jug. The brie with pepper meeting the toasty loaf.
12: Another day when some 84-year-old guy complains that his wife no longer gives him presents.
11: Small boys bumping into small girls, purposefully. (laughs) Cute little babies cracking people up. Another day when somebody finds a new bone that proves we are even ancienter than we thought we were.
12: Grave diggers working in the cool early morning. A
11: walk in the park.
12: Another day when the singing sunlight turns
11: you every way but loose. When you accidentally notice the sublime. Somersaults
12: and duels.
11: Another day when you see a woman with really red hair. I mean really red hair. A wedding day. A plain day.
12: So, we'll try again. Okay?
13: When you accidentally notice the sublime. What we're struck with in hearing, as in reading a Bartholomew story, is the beautiful, precise economy of words. And I believe that he was unique in all the world of letters in that. He was. I knew him as a friend, dear, dear friend, for more than 20 years, and an upstairs neighbor as well. But more than that, he was a man of a few perfectly chosen moments. I remember Don at the pen board meetings, where he would habitually come in his cowboy boots and habitually sit in the back the eminence Guise as our, And he did not talk often and and never long, but what he said was always pithy and appropriate and usually right. I recall the time when he was to present a report to the board on a pen all-star reading that we had just put on at the University of Houston. He stood up, and I, as I remember it, he said just, Richard Howard took the word rebarbative to Texas,
0: <laughs>
13: where it was badly needed, <laughs> and sat down. <laughs> that was all, all that was required. And he had distilled the event exactly. One reason he could be so spare and exact in his writing, of course, was that he was able to get rid of all the unnecessary, useless, cumbersome, undignified, aimless words. The way it worked was this. He would let all the unwanted words fall through his typewriter downstairs (laughs) to my apartment. In fact, To my typewriter, (laughs) which is why I write these large and bulky books, and Don's were so small and jewel-like and perfect. But I didn't mind, of course, because his leftover works were wonderful, like Blog, for example, and Sockdollager, and Trumpery Frumpery, and it also enabled him to keep his apartment so clean and quite neat while mine got cluttery and stuff. In one conversation in that apartment a few years ago, Don and I were talking about the perfect short story. And I said at one point, the way you're talking, you sound as if you're actually trying to get it all done in a single sentence. He said, yes, I think I just might stop writing if I could get exactly the right words in the right sentence. He paused. There was that little smile at the edges of his upper lip. Or maybe he said, a single word. We didn't name the word that night, of course, or ever. But I thought about it a lot since then. I would try various suggestions on him as we would pass in the hallway over the years. A celestial, oak tree, bump folly, wrote him on top. Uh, but he would always just give a faraway smile and shake his head and not say a Well, Don has now. if he never did get it all down to a single sentence, he got it down pretty wonderfully. And I think he knew that, and was in large part happy with that. And I think that he died proud, rightfully proud, of his achievement. But every so often I keep thinking about that one word, and it was only a few days after his death that a word did come to me, not his word, of course, the one that has stuck with me because it came to stand for what I think of when I think of Donald, his life and his work. The word is luminescent. Donald Bartholomew was and is luminescent. He has left a shining memory in our hearts that will last as long as we may live. And a shining legacy in his art that will never